Hello, and thank you for joining us on another episode of HashMap on Tap. I am your host, Randy Pitcher, and today I am really excited to welcome Vikas Jain to the show. Vikas works in security product management at Snowflake, and Vikas, welcome to the show. What are you drinking today? I'm drinking a spice chai, which is a concoction of Darjeeling tea, uh, the Indian Darjeeling tea, milk, and Indian spices. Uh, well, I grew up in India, drinking it every single day. So every morning to get me started, this is one thing that I have to drink. So I'm really ignorant to tea. Is this a caffeinated tea? It does have caffeine, but it also has a lot of antioxidants compared to coffee or other drinks. Okay. So I, I knew you were going to have a tea today. So I also got a tea, but not just one. Normally when I do a tea episode, I just grab an herbal tea, you know, off the shelf and throw that in. But I got some special loose leaf tea today and a loose leaf kind of tea holder. Um, and it's carrot cake, white tea. So it's like spiced, you know, really, really heavily kind of like a carrot cake. Um, and it's fantastic. It's great. It's early afternoon in Oklahoma City right now. And this is the perfect kind of caffeine free warm drink. Oh, this looks quite exciting. Did it, you get it from Trader Joe's or someplace? No, I, I got it from a local farmer's market. There's kind of a lot of that, especially now in the late summer. Even though, you know, it's hard to go to a farmer's market the same way. There is a, it's a farmer's market, but it's like a co-op style. So it's like a physical building that we go to. And so it's local producers will bring their goods there. But it's not like, um, you know, like open booth farmer's market experience. I think a lot of people are used to. Yeah, but it, it's fantastic. I, I get, I, I've had some other stuff on the show from there. Getting started here, Vikas, do you want to say maybe a little bit more about what you do at Snowflake? Yeah, so I lead the product management for security features at Snowflake that include all the three security layers of security, network, identity and access management, and data encryption. Okay. And then uh, do you work on a very large team or is it just you and maybe a handful of people? So I have a decent sized engineering team that I work with to deliver all these fantastic features to all of our customers. Yeah. And the team is growing, you know, in the recent years with the parabolic growth of Snowflake, we have been able to invest. Wow. I mean, good for you. And now this is, I got to think one of the most exciting times to be at Snowflake, one of the most exciting companies, in my opinion, of 2020, maybe of the decade. You've been there for a little while now too. This isn't a, a fresh new gig for you. What first sparked your interest in joining Snowflake and how have things changed, especially going into the IPO this year? So before joining Snowflake, I was building security software and services for companies such as Salesforce, McAfee, Oracle, and startups like Oblix. Now, when the Snowflake opportunity came, you know, with the expertise that I had in security, I thought, why not I apply the same expertise to how to secure the data that Snowflake is managing? And that piqued my interest. And the reason I am at Snowflake is because I'm a technologist at heart. And when I look at this opportunity, I saw, well, the founders have done a great job at reinventing how the data should be managed in the cloud. Yeah. So the security aspects of it has to be equally inspiring as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that's definitely something they put first class, right? Is the security experience and the ability to trust the platform. How did you really first come across Snowflake? Do you recall the first time like you saw it or did they kind of reach out to you and it was a, uh, a kind of happy coincidence that it was a good fit? Yeah, it was a cold call from uh, one of the recruiters at Snowflake. 
I didn't work at any database company before. Yeah. Um, yes, I was at Oracle, but I was middleware part of Oracle. So it was a cold call that ended up into you know working for the company after I learned about the great technology it had. Wow, good for them. So tell me a little more about the kind of problems you solve, like security that can sound very kind of amorphous to people. What, what are you really trying to achieve in your team? Yeah, so at a high level, if you look at security, there are two parts to it. One is keeping the service secure mm. from all the bad actors. And that is how hardened your platform is and how well you have designed your platform to make sure that the bad actors cannot steal the data. And then the other part is to make sure that you provide the knobs to your customers on how they can integrate the security features with whatever security tools they have. Yeah. A good example is how do you authenticate using users in Active Directory? So my team works on providing those security features, the knobs that the customers can tweak to adjust to their security posture. Now, the way we do it is uh, Snowflake at, by heart is a customer-centric company. So we listen to customer problems intently and then come up with innovative solutions that use the latest technology trends in the security industry. So a good example of this is when we try to solve the problem of data access for regulations such as GDPR and CCPA in California yeah. that has just come up this year. Uh, and so when we know that the security industry is moving towards context-driven enforcement, when we design these feature, new features, we make sure that we are designing for the future. So that's our way of solving the problems. Instead of just looking at what how people have done it in the past, to look also at what new trends are available today to solve future problems. So when you're thinking about the problem or the challenge of security, this is something I like to ask people in the industry. Are you mostly, like you personally, are you mostly thinking about the bad actor, black hat, hack, hacker who's going to try to get in, get data access, or do something nefarious? Or are you thinking that the primary threat is the accidental drop of a table or the accidental access by someone who doesn't really know exactly what they're doing at a company to data that is out of compliance with GDPR or CCPA? Yeah, so the first and foremost is to definitely making sure that the software is secure by design Okay. to make sure that the bad actors cannot reach the data which is jewels to the ground. And so making sure that whatever is designed keeps the bad actors away. But okay. at the same time, you would have seen a lot of security threats in the recent times is not because of bad actors trying to break in, but because someone accidentally misconfigured the system. Yeah. You know, leaving the data open for access. And so um, this is our job to make sure that when we expose the security features, uh, whether it is how people are authenticating to making sure that you are leveraging the latest standards like OAuth or single yeah. sign-on with all the appropriate security measures and considerations, to even providing private link like connectivity, which is private and making sure that the bad actors cannot even reach because you need to have a private IP address that is in control of the customer's environment. Yeah. 
So when you think about all these features, right, and, and like what they enable, do you personally have a favorite security feature of Snowflake? Uh, I know I certainly have mine, uh, but I wanted to know what's your favorite security. And that might be a naive question for someone who doesn't work in security. But is there one that you especially think, man, I really like that we have that? Yeah, so Snowflake has tons of security features, whether it is the providing private connectivity using some of the cloud service providers, private link features, and some of that, you know, we have been pushing these cloud service providers to support it on yeah. behalf of the customers to all the way to how the data is accessed securely. Now, one of my favorite features is how we do the column masking to make sure that the data that customer has can be complied with GDPR and CCPA regulations. So that's a feature we released in public preview earlier this year, and soon it will be available for general availability. But the cool part about that is it allows you as a customer to use variety of different contexts, whether it is the user's current role on in which the query is being run mm -hmm. to even anything that you can drop in into a session parameter that can be used to know about what the context is and under that context, how the masking of the column should be done or not. So let me ask you this. So th this is something that's been rolling around in my head. You know, people come and ask me for help with Snowflake design, specifically security is always top of mind for any cloud migration, right? How would you contrast the data masking functionality with the secured view functionalities? And is there a specific environment where you would say, okay, this is a really good fit over this? Um, would you not consider them to be competing features? How would you contrast those? Yeah, so Secure View Snowflake had for several years, and yeah. that was the go-to solution when it came to any column-level security or row-level security, as you can define a Secure View, hiding a particular column that you do not want to expose it to a set of users. Yeah. But the problem that customers run into with that solution is around management. So imagine you have five different constituents where you know some columns in a table has to be exposed and some doesn't have to be exposed yeah so you end up with five different secure views and then on top of it if you have business intelligence solution such as tableau where you have to use these secure views to build the dashboards mm -hmm. then you end up with five different dashboards so now you have to manage five dashboards and five view just for one table. Imagine oh, I see. Yeah. lots yeah. of our customers have thousands of tables, tens of thousands of tables. So it becomes challenging from a management perspective to just manage these additional secure views when uh, the data is the same. Now, when you're, when you're looking at that, does it become harder than to audit what data was actually returned in those environments? Whereas a secured view, right? As long as it's defined appropriately, uh, the BI tools are really well equipped to be able to switch between tables. The role switching can be much more challenging, especially in an SSO context with Snowflake right now. If I go and look in the history and I want to ensure, okay, this person looked at this data with the masking, does it become more challenging to know what data they actually received? No. So from an auditing perspective, we have made sure that the data masking solution provides all the audits that are necessary. Okay that were available through the secure views as well. Now, one cool thing about the solution is, compared to the secure views is, if you look at the secure views, the owner of the view has access to the data. Yeah. 
Whereas in the case of dynamic data masking, we have created segregation of duties where a security officer can decide if the owner of that even view or a table should even have access to that column. So it solves a problem that Secure View does not even solve today. Yeah, I, I think with data masking, I'm also really excited about it. And I asked you your favorite feature. I wanted to share mine as well, because I don't think it's a feature people, you know, at first think of as a security feature uh, until they start solving security problems with it. And that's the ability of Snowflake to extend the internal metadata back to US tables without having to do data engineering. So the Snowflake database, that's my favorite database uh, with the account usage. And I'm, I am no security expert at all, right? Like I'm not that kind of person, but I can do a little data engineering. So if you want to identify, you know, bad IP addresses that are trying to connect, or if you want to identify attempted usages of the account admin role, uh, which I do internally regularly, this is a fantastic way to do it without having to set up, you know, a whole SIM system and without having to understand full cloud engineering, it's just SQL. So I always like to tell people, like, when you're considering Snowflake or maybe some other tools, that alone is one of the major advantages that you can build these like you said, it's context, bringing the context back into the security out of the box. Anyone who has Snowflake has those tables. So that's a great solution to help people get started with. And then, of course, you can grow from there. Yeah, um, Randy, you br- bring up a very good point, which is Snowflake is not just used for analytics on whether it is your operational data or some corporate data, but lots of our customers are also using it for security analytics. And what it means is you can do some uh, security threat analysis right into Snowflake, ingesting all the firewall data, all the other access data, and then combining it with the bad IP addresses kind of data coming yeah. from data sharing side of the house. So yeah, that's another great feature that we have. And in the cloud world we live in, especially companies who are making their first jump, and from my perspective, definitely our industry is filtered where, where I'm working with people typically larger companies who are making one of their first investments into the cloud. And they go with Snowflake because it's really easy as a first pass attempt to do cloud first development. If you know SQL, a lot of companies already do. You can be productive on it in a week. Uh, You can get data into it really easily. You can get faster dashboards, which is actually the major thing you were trying to do with Hadoop in the first place. So there's a lot of wins there, but then you're going to grow into some, what I would consider more complex environments in cloud native services, virtual machines, serverless, um, d- just different like AIML applications in the cloud. And once you have this approach for security, I found almost surprisingly to me, it's a similar approach for cloud cost monitoring. It's it's all kind of the same data. And then if you have the concept of an alert or a violation that you're applying to your tabular data, you can control costs in ways that the cloud vendors just don't allow you to do. And you can blend that across different cloud vendors in your single platform in Snowflake. And then once you have security and cloud cost solution, guess what? Data quality, it's not that much different. So the, the same set of features you would use for security monitoring, you can ensure that your data is of the appropriate quality, that changes are detected and acted upon, that costs don't go out of control or left on overnight, really kind of simple things. Uh, and I find that it's a great, I don't know, home base when you're deploying to the cloud. Yeah, and, and that's how Snowflake has evolved into a cloud data platform. You can do your data prep, you can do, you know, even for the security use cases, as you were mentioning, if you want to do analytics, security analytics on Snowflake, 
he can do all the nine yards just in Snowflake yeah. and start to query the data. And you can go so far with that. And now with SnowSight, the new kind of UI that's, you know, kind of being more and more adopted, there's some component of visualization in there as well and data profiling. So I, I'm, I'm honestly really excited to see where Snowflake's going to be in even like six months with the ability you can do in a single environment. I, I've met people over coffee. I'm fond of saying this. People who are curious about the Snowflake experience, and we set them up in a trial and had them ingesting their own data and visualizing in Power BI over coffee. And you can't say that about the alternatives. Yeah, the speed of adoption is one of the key things. It's not just you know how simple it is, how performant it is, but also uh, how quickly you can get insights from the data. You know, even for the Snowflake usage data, whether it is the login history or whether it yeah. is the query history, now you can use the power of SnowSight to build some cool dashboards out of the box instead of yeah. you know having some BI tool, you can straight away have these kind of uh, you know check your security posture um, right from Snow SnowSight using the account usage views that we have for security. I'm working right now in so at HashMap we have I think a, a somewhat non-standard relationship with our Snowflake instance, because I have internally production use cases running out of that Snowflake instance, but we also have people who are training to become experts in Snowflake, to get the Snow Pro certifications, to go and consult with other companies. So it's this weird mix where they need high level access to learn these skills, to build these objects, but they're new, right? So it's this weird environment where I have a lot of admins who kind of don't know what they're doing. So that makes the the requirement to like know if a warehouse has been left on at 4XL 24-7. Like I need to know and action that without like stopping them from being able to do those kind of things. Uh, so again, those tables coming back, the kind of visualization you talked about, the dashboarding right in the tool, that's really critical. So coming back a little bit to your kind of job uh, role and the things that you do at Snowflake, I mentioned getting excited about what's going to happen in the next six months, but I want to turn that back on you. If you could only achieve one thing in the next six months, put all your efforts into one thing that would get achieved, what problem would you choose to focus on? So we started, as I was mentioning about the policy-based approach to column data masking, we are yeah. adding many new features to, to heighten the security for the data governance use cases. So okay. as you will see in the next six months, we'll be releasing a lot more policies and, and use cases to help the customers solve the data governance problems. So let me ask you this then, because when I hear data governance, to me, that's one side of a multifaceted coin. Is there any room for cataloging or discovery in that discussion? So at a high level, we are looking at all the different problems that our customers are asking us to solve. Okay. But I cannot give you specifics until... No specific. Uh, okay. No secrets. Until, I got gotcha. you. Uh, yeah, we, okay. we uh, release them. Well, I think if I'm here in data governance, I will totally uninformed make a guess on where that's leading, and I'm really excited to see it. So let me ask you, Vikas, how is your tea? Well, uh, I'm a fast drinker, so by now the my tea is already empty. The cup is empty, okay. and uh, in probably a couple of hours, I'll have my next tea. Okay, I think I'm right behind you, and I... 
I think I'm going to get a refill. So this loose leaf tea, totally new to me. I bet I can get a couple other rounds, a couple other cups out of this. So I'm going to redo it. And uh, the the carrot cake spice man is just killing it right now. I don't know about you, but it's it's basically mid September right now, and I know it's not technically fall. I don't know when fall technically starts, but to my mind. It's fall time, and I'm I'm wearing my flannels. I am ready for the fall season for winter to come in. What about you? Yeah, so um, if you look at, if you visit any Indian household, they will say that no two tea are the same. So every tea or chai has a distinct flavor, whether you add how much of spice, you have different types of spice, cardamom, or, um, you know, sometimes there are strong spices like, mm-hmm. you know, cinnamon and you know, concoction of different spices make the tea very distinct. So I always look for whenever we visit our friends and family, like a distinct flavor of uh, Oh, that's of fun. Pie. Yeah, because everyone's got their own to make. I love just trying interesting drinks with people, right? And that's part of why we do it on a podcast because it gives us, uh, I don't know, it gives me an excuse to go and try something new, right? I, I had... um. Uh, someone from Eastern Europe on and they were really all about like wine spritzers, like mixing wine and soda water, which I hadn't really done. Um, and they, they have a whole like organizational chart of the different kinds and the different names for how you mix them and the different uh, ratios. So I really like that. And I'm glad that we did this today because I think I found a new favorite afternoon drink because I just can't keep pounding coffees all the time. That's not good. Well, if you would have uh, had the show late evening, then we would have a different conversation, of course. Exactly. That's why we have, so that, that one I mentioned about Eastern Europe. So of course there are a few hours ahead of me. So for them, it was like six, six o'clock or so. And for me, it was like nine. And yeah, so I had um, just a couple drinks of, of, of the wine, but it was a weird, bizarre experience. Like I had to go pick it up at 8 a.m. and like pour it all out. It's like, man, this is way too early. <laughs> Um, hey, okay. So, uh, looking at your LinkedIn profile, I always like to do a little, uh, a little research on the guests, make sure I can ask some good questions. You describe yourself as a product management leader specializing in identity and security. And it makes me wonder, how would you describe your own leadership style? So I, I like to lead by example. Okay. You know, nothing better than doing what others you want others to do. And, uh, uh, when it comes to you know getting the projects projects done, I ask a lot of questions to the team and let the team come up with answers for them. So okay. this is this way they they find ownership on what they're trying to do and and feel accomplished. Oh, that's interesting. So that kind of speaks a bit to uh, motivation then. If you're trying to instill intentionally a sense of ownership, are there other approaches you have to? ensuring you know team motivation that people are excited about what they're doing they're really able to give it their all yeah so bringing the customer context okay definitely motivates my team you know so that that's where i spend a lot of time collecting what the customer problems are use cases are you know and then also as i'm constantly in touch with the security industry so yeah you know, talking about those industry trends with the team excites them to, okay, this is how we can potentially solve different problems or at least look into those solutions. I like that answer a lot, that you're you're bringing the why of all of this front and foremost, focusing it on the customer. 
Uh, when you do that, and I think specifically at product companies, is there a challenge that you may be overfitting your design or your considerations for the needs of your very largest, loudest customers or for the customers you have today, not necessarily the ones you have tomorrow? Is that something you think about? Yeah, so I focus a lot on why and what and okay. I let the how part be done by engineering. Oh, I love that. Yeah. But then even in the how part, I also ask a lot of whys because you don't want to over-engineer or over-design uh, a particular project. Yeah. So there's a lot of back and forth that goes in in terms of how do you scope a certain feature. What I w- try to avoid is over-index on just one feature Yeah. while we know that there are lots of gaps to be solved for other features. So prioritization, relative prioritization, and, and where we should say that let's move on and yeah. leave the other parts for the V2 is an important piece of the equation. Man, it sounds like you have like a really kind of coaching focus of leadership, of really just enabling people to do what they know how to do, but making sure that no one ever loses sight of the main goal, that you're focusing on why, that you'll be able to relate the activities that people are doing how to like that broader reason for doing any of this. That's really impressive. And it, it brings up questions to me about the culture. So some of what we're talking about here, this really comes back to the culture of your team. And as a leader of the team, are there specific steps you take to ensure this culture is maintained or to make specific adjustments to culture as you see things creeping in that maybe you want to try to avoid? Yeah, so the culture in the team we have is very collaborative in nature, whether it is during the planning phase when we have to plan for the quarter to build features or when it comes to customer escalations, it's always important that we are always in sync. Okay. And we constantly sync through team meetings, but also, you know, one-on-ones, you know, using Slack, just in a, if an issue comes, let's make sure that, you know, we are in sync before we even talk about it outside the team. Yeah. So collaboration is the very critical piece of how we achieve what we do as a team. Great. And so when you're thinking about the collaborative environment, that requires a lot of trust on a team, right? To know that yes, if you're going to issue an idea that, you know, it doesn't work out, that the team is going to ridicule you and keep you from, you know, speaking up or that you don't just let, you know, in a collaborative environment, that sometimes is code for the most assertive type A personalities are going to dominate the conversation in a room. And the quieter, you know, maybe maybe introverted type folks, they get steamrolled. So in a leader position where you're defining that culture, are there things you do to ensure that doesn't happen? Yeah, so in order to make sure that everyone is heard, yeah, it's all about the projects that are assigned. Let the person talk about the project status, the issues they are facing. Also, if someone who is loudest in the team is speaking about something to also check in with others, what do they think about it? Yeah. And let them, you know, be part of the process. So inclusion is a very, very important characteristic that we use for this collaborative environment. And then, you know, uh, it's one of those things when you keep doing things, keep doing it, you just keep getting better. Getting better. Yeah. I, especially at a growing company, right? You've seen, I think, multiple stages of life for Snowflake you know, pass through you. That becomes, I think, really, really challenging. I don't know the answer to that from a leadership perspective. I know it's something I think about a lot at HashMap, where even just on the sales team, right? 
Um, we do have a mix of people who are extroverted and introverted. And I, I think I fall more on the extroverted side professionally. I don't think that's who I am as a person, but just professionally, I do have an extrovert kind of bent. And I think often, like, am I just sucking all the air out of the room? Are there things I could be doing to promote maybe lesser heard voices? Because I know there are some great ideas locked into people who just like, they, I don't know, that's not their their go-to. That's not the way they, they prefer to collaborate. And then I would have assumed as teams grow, like if you go from five to 10 to 15 to 20, that problem gets worse and you become less aware of it. So that's interesting to hear your thoughts on tackling that at a company that is growing, like you said, really, really quickly. Yeah, and, and scaling an organization is entirely different thing when it comes to you know growing from one to ten to you know ten to hundred to then you know hundred to hundred thousand, right? I can't and yeah so, wow. So yeah, as a company, everyone is aware of the scaling challenge, but uh, I think we are doing fine with the yeah. approach that we have taken. It's a challenging thing to do as well from a like a supporting tools standpoint because there's a spectrum, right? There's one spectrum where there's no central guidance on how this should be done and it's just the Wild West and you cross your fingers and hope for the best. And then there's the overly clamped down process for process's sake. Everyone knows this is just like it's theater to show that we care, but we're not actually doing anything. So striking that balance, especially at a company that's growing, you have other concerns, there's just constant activity. I mean, that's an interesting challenge to me. I like that a lot. So thinking about your team, uh, we're talking about your team a lot, the culture that you have. I think I already know one answer to this, but do you have any secret weapons or things that you think have helped you be really effective in bringing security features to this product? Well, I think customer centricity is the, you know, I wouldn't call it secret, but a lot of times people just do not heed to that simple tenant, which is listen to your customers. And when you listen to to customers, they will tell you what their problems are. And then you build the solutions, not just for one customer, but using you know few customers as your input, then you apply your thinking around what other customers might be running into similar issues and then solve it for, for the millions. Yeah, and then listening to your customers, I think kind of like you said, it's not a secret. I think anyone who you ask them who's working on a product, they're going to say, yeah, I, I focus on my customers. But I think the nuts and bolts of that is where things get a little tricky, right? How do you avoid just listening to your own bubble of people who happen already to be connected? Are there steps you take specifically to reach out and get that feedback? Or is it mostly inbound feedback you're getting from like people submitting like feedback forms or requesting to talk? Yeah, so as part of our product life cycle, we have three stages in any large projects yeah you know when we build the product we first have a private preview we give it to few customers to give some feedback on you know what features they love what features they that are missing and yeah. then we take that feedback and you know once we solve those problems we release the public preview and you know then it opens up for the world we hear the feedback again, and then finally, we make the feature generally available. With this three-stage process, we are able to have the customer participate in the feature development lifecycle. And sometimes I go even before the private preview stage to even do a concept review before a single line of code is written by the engineers. So this is what we have in mind. 
give us your thoughts at a high level, get that concept review done with few customers to ensure that what we are building makes sense or not. Yeah, man, I really enjoy that. And I like your focus on that, on getting that feedback really even early on and failing kind of fast. It sounds like you're doing a lot of rapid iteration, rapid prototyping. So let's ask a little bit outside of the work context, right? I know Snowflake's so hot right now. It's what I really want to talk about, but I'm curious about you as a person. How do you spend your time outside of work? How do you like to fill your days? Well, um, I'm a family person. I have a a beautiful wife and two girls, 16 and 12, who will soon be going to college. So, you know, before they go to college, I want to spend as much time as possible with them. We play board games during our, you know, together time or watch movies. And, you know, whenever I get some time outside of that, I like to read up on financial news as uh, finance is another passion outside of technology that I have. Okay. So like, what's some of your favorite sources for financial news? So I'm a subscriber of Investor's Business Daily. That gives me a good... uh, a dump of what's going on. Yeah, I also read up uh, Wall Street Journal. But then lately I have been hooked up to Seeking Alpha, which is more user-generated content, uh, yeah. similar to Facebook, but for finance. Oh, that's fantastic. We'll have to include a link to that um, there. I, Gosh, I thought I took an accounting class, right, in, in school. And I thought, man, this is going to be finance. This is like the stuff wrong. I was so dead wrong. I hated it so much. I dropped out of the class with like a full A plus. Like I was doing great in the class, dropped out four weeks in because I could not stand accounting at all. That's just not a thing I could do. Um, So then I thought, you know, maybe finance isn't for me. Because again, I'm just still kind of like dumb like that. I didn't really understand they could be separate concepts until the last semester of school, I took a personal finance class. And it's really simple stuff like, hey, invest in like ETFs. Like don't Bother to play the market unless you're really invested in understanding it and learning it. Like just how to put things on autopilot, use a Roth, you know, get the pre-tax kind of stuff and then just put put it on autopilot. So it was a great class, but I was like, man, I wish I would have gotten that sooner and I could have really explored this, this interest because finance is, uh, I we, we did recently um, an episode on the finance industry, just kind of focused on one of the industries we serve at HashMap. And I truly believe it is one of the like next to fire the loan, I think, is one of the most fundamental and impressive uh, human inventions. The ability to capitalize a venture. I think that's part of why we live in the industry in like prosperous times that we live in today. And people don't think of it. They think of it like, well, we invented the polio vaccine and we invented, you know, a better way to farm. But I think finance and instrument, financial uh, tools are really key to that. Do you agree with that kind of idea? Yeah, no, I think finance is what powers the trade and trade powers the interconnectivity that we have in the world. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if currency was not invented thousands of years back. Oh my God, currency, um, exactly. We wouldn't be what we are today, right? So uh, finance is an important glue for what the whole human mankind and, uh, yeah. and what the culture we have today. I, I think I think a lot about lasting positive impact and that if you want to make a big change. If you want things to change, you've got to find a way to make it financially positive, right? You need yeah. to find a way to, cause that's how you, that's how you influence mass groups of people. And, and, you know, these days as data is being used for whether it's financial modeling or uh, even for investments um, coming back to yeah how data is important. 
it's so refreshing to see how the more data you have, mm-hmm. it can help with your decision making, whether it is you know investments and the ETFs that you had mentioned, or whether it is capitalizing on what a financial asset mean to you. Yeah. No, that's really good. So, so then I think I'll, I'll wrap it up here with one last question. I think I, I have a little instinct on what the answer is. What would you be doing if you weren't in tech? Uh, probably I would have been uh, a financial analyst uh, somewhere in the Wall Street. Okay. But, you know, I'm, I'm still happy with uh, what I'm doing in technology because there's a, a lot and a lot of learning still I have to do in my current job. So, yeah. Well, Vikas, thank you so much for your time today. We, I, I really enjoyed having you on the podcast. Uh, you're welcome. And thanks, Randy, for inviting me. This has been a great conversation. Yeah, I agree. And of course, as always, um, thank you to the audience for listening. Please subscribe for more HashMap on Tap content, and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to HashMap on Tap. Be sure to subscribe for weekly new episodes and visit HashMap's Medium blog for new data and cloud technology perspectives. If you have any comments or suggestions for the podcast, please visit the HashMap ONTAP page on HashMap's website. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for tuning in.